You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. studio today with President Brown and English professor Dr. Daniel Strait. Dr. Strait is Associate Dean of our College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences here at Asbury in his 26th year of teaching here with us. He also is an expert on themes facing higher education, things like artificial intelligence, and he's also going to help us shed a little light today on the liberal arts. So welcome, Dr. Strait. Let's kick it off there. Let's talk about what the liberal arts are and perhaps what they are not. Well, it's a huge subject, and I'll restrain myself. I won't try to rehearse the history of curriculum from the medieval university to the present. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But let's say that... For the sake of time and simplicity this morning, it's a long historic commitment to turning to inquiries and fields of study that deal with enduring human questions. And at least over the course of history anyway, some of those subject areas and those disciplines have ranged from logic and rhetoric to literature and so on, and history, of course. And they continue to have enduring relevance. And I think the challenge right now in our 21st century and with the demands of of the marketplace in 2023, it's not always evident to students and to the public what that enduring relevance is in studying in those areas. I think recently we've seen a lot of specialization. There's been a big push for like a master of this trade, like manufacturing needs this, engineering needs this. It's like these little specializations. But overall, students need to learn how to think well. So I think that's a big part of it, if I were to boil it down in simplistic terms. Dr. Brown, do you want to weigh in on any of those? I love that Dr. Strait has consistently used the word enduring, and I think that's one of those words that we can really hook into when we talk about a liberal arts education, which, by the way, has all kinds of cartoonish, caricatured descriptions if you were to survey the larger cultural marketplace assessing education and most of which are just silly. The bottom line is, when we talk about those enduring skills, what are those things that throughout time and throughout history are just of utter importance, whether we're thinking about adding value in the marketplace or even just cultivating those sensibilities and practices to live well, which is really at the heart of the idea of liberal arts, that I am free and I'm free to live well, and I'm not just training in some narrow way in service to a specific application in a commercial setting. Well, think about if we all just did the one thing that we set out to do when we were 22. Like, (laughs) that would be kind of a disaster. And I think if you're living well, that's not just your day job, it's your whole life. Yeah, maybe it's helpful to give an example from my own experience that I think really helps to illustrate the enduring relevance of liberal arts. My very first job right out of college was working for a nonprofit association in West Palm Beach, Florida. I was the assistant director of marketing services for a nonprofit trade association. And this trade association represented 
general contractors. It mm -hmm. just happened to be a local branch of a very large national trade association. And I think they hired me, frankly, because I could write and I could speak and I could learn. I didn't really know anything about the organization. I don't have a lot of construction in my past. I mean, I did some summers with some contractors and that kind of thing. But as I got into the job, I realized that it was a far more complex job than I realized with a greater array of demands than I thought because this little organization not only dealt with things like workers' comp insurance and general representation at uh, state and local governments and, th and that kind of thing. So we were doing some political lobbying. We were meeting with all of the leaders in Palm Beach County, Florida at the time. We were dealing with education concerns, safety concerns. We even had a annual conference on hurricane preparedness. So all of a sudden, when I thought I was just dealing with a set number of skills, I was actually really having to kind of think my way through a whole range of activities and trying to interpret the meaning and the significance of those activities to the members who paid dues to belong to this organization and to derive value from it. And so I was constantly reaching back into my ability to try to think through social questions that arose, very complex personalities, a whole range of business-related questions. I had a minor in business in college, but I was constantly talking to local CEOs of some of the largest commercial construction companies in the county. And at the time, Florida was a booming construction economy. But in talking with them, I was really being put in touch with all kinds of leaders across the state. So it was a much bigger job for which I think a liberal arts education, precisely along the lines that Dr. Brown just sketched, was preparing me. I know this isn't how we often lead with talking about liberal arts, but I do think it's a very important consideration, and I'm saying this relevant to what Dr. Strait just said. So when you look at the history of higher education, certainly a lot of commentators believe that after the financial crisis, 2007 to 2009, that really shifted the way we talked about education. Forget who said the expression, words create worlds. It really changed even the imaginative atmosphere for how we think about education. And a lot could be said about that, but lo and behold, today we are in what you might call a buyer's market. And it's this narrow view that education exists to foster the social and economic potential of students so they can serve the workforce. And there are just infinite examples of that. This is a really off-the-wall question, but artificial intelligence, everyone's talking about this. Does it just emphasize the importance of liberal arts, or does it kind of delegitimize the importance of it in a way? Well, let me pick up on something that Dr. Brown just mentioned, that words create worlds. One of the fundamental objections that I have to AI, or at least our non-critical use of it, or temptation to a non-critical use of it, is that it really pays very, very little attention to the philosophy of language in general. And I would say that the idea of words create worlds is, is actually part of the history of the development of the philosophy of language. And it happens to be a kind of more romantic conception of language that words create worlds. But I happen to find that is not necessarily the only way of thinking about how language works, but that's one of the more profound ways of thinking about how language works is that words do actually open up worlds of discovery. And most of the romantic poets kind of enact that reality or that commitment in their poetry and their prose. But I think it's part of the philosophy of the development of the philosophy of language. And I think large language models, AI, machine-generated learning, pays very, very little attention to 
what language actually is and how we think about it in relationship to our connection to the world. It just has a limited set of ways that it thinks about language and its function. I think that's really good. So one AI story is what I call the science fiction story. It will gain consciousness and use it for malevolent reasons and basically destroy humanity. And I actually think that's kind of funny. That is not a fear of mine. My fear is something far more subtle, that not AI is in this very overt way is going to malevolently destroy us, but rather we will slowly give more and more of our agency over to it in a manner that's indiscernible but in some kind of unwitting way. Well, we already are. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So one of the examples, just to make this point, I use Google for synonyms often. I could use a thesaurus. A th Google is a thesaurus online. And even oftentimes I won't even use the word. It just it begins to help me to be more imaginative in how I'm describing something. But I think I can borrow synonyms from a thesaurus or Google without losing authorial voice in something I'm trying to write. I don't think that's a controversial claim. Something like ChatGPT can just say, why don't I just write the sentence for you? And I could ask it not to stop there, but to go on and write a paragraph. And while we're at the paragraph, how about a section or how about just the entire paper? And the question is, somewhere along the line, I lose that authorial footprint. I am relegating human thinking that is a function of my personhood and a reflection of God's image, I would say, too, to something else. At what point does that actually occur? Oskinis had this little line, not the wolves at the door, but the termites in the floor. What really threatens? And I think that's the threat of AI. It's more like the termites in the floor and not the robots banging at the door with their weapons to destroy us. Yeah, I like that analogy. Well, and you've talked a lot about just the moral application of the skills that we develop here at Asbury. And that would be one area where it's like, yeah, we need to use it in an ethical and a moral way. And that's going to vary for people. But we hope here at Asbury that we train our students to do it in a biblical way. So let's shift gears just a little bit along that thread of living well, thinking well, loving well, and serving well. What's the modern relevance of the Wesleyan holiness tradition in higher education? You've been teaching students for a long time, Dr. Strait. Do you want to talk about that? So Dr. Brown talked about the liberal arts as the free life, which I completely affirm. And I think AI, as he just said, sort of threatens by way of maybe a danger of, of techno-determinism that we're abdicating not just our thinking, but we're abdicating a kind of moral reasoning, which AI can't do. It can't perform moral reasoning. It's constrained by its own algorithmic movements, and it can't find its way to a fully formed kind of moral reasoning. And that raises all kinds of challenges. And the value about a liberal arts education, particularly with the, language acquisition and learning how to write, and learning how to struggle from the beginning of a sentence to the end of the sentence, that's not just a tedious, it can be tedious, but it's not just an empty, futile kind of process on the way to a, creating a product. It's actually in the struggle itself that we learn something about how we relate to, and I'm gonna quote one of my own undergraduate professors now, on our way to understanding the discoverable orders of the world, right, aesthetic, moral, social, spiritual, and so on. 
And every time I have to wrestle a word to the ground, if you will, I'm learning something about the world in which I'm living, and I'm learning something also about how I relate to it. I'm also discovering maybe along the way an aspect of my inwardness that AI cannot on its best day account for. I just think the humanities in general, just to finish this point, the liberal arts is especially equipped to ask all of the right questions that we need to bring to this particular technology. So let me just concede and say that there will be plenty of our students who will be working with AI in the future. There are plenty who are working with it right now, whether they're conscious of it or not. But the people who will really actually be the experts in thinking about AI are the people who learned how to think outside of the system That's of right. AI. That's right. And that are not bounded by the contours of AI. So the people who do that the best are liberal arts majors who have spent time with language, with literature, with history, with philosophy. There's a, a book by Kevin Ashton on creativity, and he opens with this really wonderful story of a letter that was found written by Mozart. And it was an important letter because he was describing his process of creativity, and it was something like, it had this really rich language, I escaped to my bedroom and then this kind of burst of creative energy. The music shows up in my head, and at that point, I just simply transfer it to paper. So he's describing a eureka moment. And Ashton says that letter's been referenced, you know, a zillion times, but we recently learned it was a fraud. It was fraudulent. Mozart never wrote that. And actually, for the Mozart scholars who studied his life and his work, they said he would never have written that because it's a poor description of creativity. Creativity is struggle, as you just said. It is fits and starts. It's zigzaggy, to use a Garth Greenwell expression. It's nonlinear. And that's what it takes to produce something that could be really beautiful and impactful and lasting in the end. But we have this idea, this outcomes-focused idea. And then, yeah, there's a eureka moment that leads to it. So I was in a recent discussion in a similar way talking about this false idea that I know something and then I write it down. And to paraphrase Tish Harrison Warren, she says, I write to know. How do I translate or transfer right. all that's going on, processing an event, thinking about something difficult, these norms of truth-seeking, and I know of no better, and I'm not even a good writer, but I know of no better mechanism to actually think about that in a full-bodied way and in an embodied way than writing. What do your students think about this? Because I've heard a few of them say, I don't want to hear the word chat GPT ever again. What's their feeling about this future they're stepping into? Well, one of the things that I'm trying not to do in class is to issue all of these warnings and admonitions for them to stay off of chat GPT. I'm simply just trying to help them, for instance, in reading we're reading Samuel Johnson right now in one of my classes, and, and Johnson was the sole author, really, for the most part. He had a little clerical help in assembling the 1755 edition of the Dictionary of the English Language together, which compiles some 40,000 words, 115,000 quotations wow. from literature. And I asked them to take time to go down to the archives and, and look at the, I think it's a fourth edition that we have of, of Johnson's Dictionary, and to recognize that it, it's a monument, it's, it's an amazing achievement in lexicography. But if they really look at it, it's really a monumental achievement in Johnson learning how to inhabit the long and rich and cavernous corridors of the English language and its history. And to do that, you almost need to recognize that 
every word in one way or another carries echoes of other words and other myths and other stories and other narratives. It's not just something that we use for some hyper-practical instrumental purpose. Obviously, language has instrumental uses. But when we're really moved by a passage of literature, we're moved because of the particular way in which words are working on multiple levels. One of those levels is to pick up on the many, many layered meanings that are behind that and the way in which that same word has been used by other poets and other thinkers in previous generations. I mean, poetry is always owing to, for instance, or literature in general, always owing to other literatures and other poetry in the past. And so it, it tells this older, far more remarkable story. And again, ChatGPT just cannot enter into the richness of that. And I think that's why we gravitate toward poetry, song, lyric, great literature and so on, because we feel as though it's, it's touching our soul in some way. And of course, AI has no way of producing anything that is soul-filled or created, as Keats would say, in the veil of soul-making. Mm. And literature is kind of a veil of soul-making. Anyway, that maybe bridges to Wesley and mm -hmm. application a little bit, not because Keats was Wesley by the stretch of <laughs> the imagination, but I think Wesley recognized that to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ you needed to be a fully formed human person. We're able to draw from the rich array of subject areas that have looked at, studied, examined the human person in a set of social, economic, spiritual conditions. And Wesley himself was writing in the age that Johnson was writing. In fact, the one complaint that I remember reading that Johnson had about John Wesley is that Wesley didn't have time to sit down for a conversation. Wesley was living in an age where he was a careful observer of human experience. It was a huge commitment of his to study the human person in his condition. And he had so much to say about the nature of economic injustice, right? Poverty. He even dabbled in medicine yes. as a way of trying to meet people in poverty. Primitive Physic was his highest right. selling book in his lifetime. Yeah. So this is somebody who is obviously trying to find in any given case an ability to kind of imagine a way of addressing the needs, practical sometimes, but also spiritual needs of people and their, in some cases, very desperate conditions. But you, we have to know something about those deep narrative human needs. And I think one of the best ways there is through the study of the liberal arts. That reminds me, so Michael Matheson Miller, he's with the Acton Institute, he used to teach, he said one of his students said, are you gonna talk about the abolition of man in every lecture? And he said, boy, I hope so. <laughs> so Lewis's Men Without Chests essay from that set of essays, Abolition of Man, where he's describing others who are describing some people standing before a waterfall. Actually, I think it was Coleridge. And one calls the waterfall this kind of flat, like neat or something like that. And another says it's sublime. And Coleridge is, is very critical of the generic term. It's not neat. Again, whatever the, the expression, it's sublime. And the point Lewis was trying to convey was that we're not simply saying something about an interior experience or feelings or secretions we might have when we see a waterfall. We're saying something about the waterfall. And one word is more descriptive than another because it better captures the reality of the beauty of the waterfall, something that's drawing our ordinate affections and not just a statement about our feelings. And to the extent that our language does default to the latter, this will be, says Lewis, the abolition of man. And so I love that thought too, that our language, our literature, our poetry, this writing 
is actually drawing me out of myself to attempt a true and accurate statement about the world around me and what is taking place there. That has beauty that exists independent of my capacity to see it. And this is why Peter Kreef said, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's in the power of the beholder's eye to see beauty. George Steiner wrote a very strange book several years ago called Grammars of Creation. It deals with just the thrill and the power of something coming into being by means of the word. He recognizes that literature is a very, very powerful way of thinking about the act of creation itself. The very language that we use to describe and to enter into a creative act. And he worries a little bit that we are losing touch with recognizing just how powerful that can be. Dr. Strait, you've been teaching a long time in English. So that's one of those topics that, you know, some people would say, well, what can you do with an English major? What are some of the really cool things that you've seen your students go on to do? I'll start with just a very brief personal testimony and say that I think I decided to major in English because I wanted to study something that I knew would never really be obsolete. Mm. That the day that I graduated, it would take on meaning and not diminish in meaning. I wouldn't have to sell back my textbooks that two or three years out from my undergraduate experience have already been thrown out and rewritten by somebody who knew better. And so what I wanted to do was to enter into a four-year period of time in which I just studied literature with the hope of learning as much as I could about the intricacy of human life and the human experience and do so by virtue of texts that give utterance to, I think of Frederick Douglass's slave narrative, when that particular text does so much for us on so many levels. But one of the profound things is that it's an autobiography. Well, how do you write an autobiography? And of course, he starts it this way, that I don't know when I was born. I don't I don't really know anything about myself. And he writes his way to the person he never knew himself to be, hmm. which means he writes his way to a sense of Frederick Douglass, the free man, the man from slave to free man. And language, language is absolutely central in the development of Douglas moving toward the free life and the deepest possible conception of his identity. Along the way, he will say, had it not been for my reading of these writers, these famous orators, these abolitionists, these profound thinkers, that I had things in me, this was part of my inwardness, these things would have died for want of utterance, but because they were written down and I was able to read that after acquiring language in some very, very remarkable ways. I could enter into a conception of liberty in a way that I never could before and discover the person I never knew myself to be. And this is what I hope for our students, that a chance conversation in the hallway, a text that we read, a passage, just a line from Shakespeare, a chapel, a coffee conversation will create an opening for a student to discover the person he never knew himself to be, the God-given person that God is calling him or her to be. There are so many ways in which I have witnessed that over the course of my career, and it's the greatest thrill in the world, to find a student who says, I didn't even know I could ask that question. I didn't even know how to even formulate that question had it not been for this particular writer. I spent a fair bit of time paying attention to the marketplace. One, I used to be in it in a more business-related capacity before I got into the academic life. But the national narrative would suggest that it is about kind of skill acquisition and career preparation. And I want to say skill acquisition is really, really crucial. We hope that every student here is learning how to write well, learning how to develop quantitative literacy, learning how to be a a better practitioner or 
methodologist in one way or another, but we want those skills, that the acquisition of those skills to be couched with and situated within a vision for how and in what way they're used and in what context. So to come back to Wesley for a minute, I mean, obviously Wesley would hope that we all would have facility with language, mm -hmm. but he also would hope that we would have facility to use language in situations where we had thought long and deeply about the community of which we're a part about the purposes and the end of our use of language, our commitments, our deepest human commitments. But this involves a very serious examination of who we are, where we are, where we live, the economic status of people, the social condition of people, what people live for, where their values are. How do you step into situations like that if you have not thought long and hard about the complex situation, the complex human predicament. And so even if I'm a great accountant, and I'm, a, I'm just a whiz with numbers, I think that's great. I would want my accountant to be a whiz <laughs> with numbers, and I would want my brain surgeon to be a really fine medical practitioner. But I think that I would also want those two people to understand what they do within, at least as far as they're able, the deepest human context in which they perform those skills. Do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Brown, in closing? I'll just say really quickly, Lydia Dugdale is at Duke. She's in medical ethics. She's made this distinction, which I actually think does have an AI parallel between medical practitioners, what she calls the intuitive mind. Uh, what is the body? What are we after here? And I think what she called the incisive mind, which she said cuts like a scalpel. So this, I have a problem. Okay, lay on the table and let's fix the problem. And the intuitive mind of this comprehensive, what are we going after? What's the purpose? What are some larger questions, some assumptions underneath this that we want to ask and let that dictate the trajectory of our medical practice? And I think this is education. This is an application of what Dr. Strait just described. And we would expect and desire that for all of our students. But it's our confidence that the work that we're engaged in prepares them just for that very kind of assessment and then application. Anything you want to add, Dr. Strait? Well, I can't let the AI thing go without <laughs> one more thing. I, I think one of the things that concerns me is that it has the ability, because it's accelerating every week in terms of it, its ability to kind of do what it does. And the more that it performs its function, outside of the messy, thorny, difficult, complex world of real human encounter mm -hmm. where we embody language in every way it seems like possible, even in our daily reactions with each other, consoling each other in the face of loss, encouraging each other in the face of disappointment, expressing our love for our children, issuing commands to our dogs. Whatever it is, language takes place in a very incarnational, very embodied context. And my worry is that AI tends to sort of lift language out of that context in a kind of detached way, where all of a sudden it's functioning in a world of text alone. And we don't live, to quote another one of my undergraduate professors, we don't live in a world of sign. The signs live in us, which was his way of thinking about what an incarnational embodied life was. And I feel like sometimes AI transports us to this world that is made up of text and text alone. And it's removing some of the anchors that bring us back to how language connects with reality and the way we use it and the purposes for which we use it. And that's a messy, difficult, arduous 
frustrating, thrilling, loving, beautiful task, and it robs us of that in the name of some instrumental efficiency, which by the way, and we won't get into this today probably, which is connected with, if I can be just really frank right now, an obscenely, obscenely money-driven technological culture. Yeah. There's an advertisement on this morning on a business show that I watched talking about the AI revolution. And it was the investment opportunity to jump in on the AI revolution. Well. Maybe we should step back and think about what are the assumptions of this revolution and what are we fighting this revolution for? What are we trying to accomplish with AI? And I, and I think that the liberal arts people out there are going to be the people who know how to ask that question. Expression just conveys whatever happens, happens. Uh, this Now we're in the AI revolution because that is the the next link on this infinite chain of human progress. This uncritical affirmation of technological process that whatever form technology takes and whatever it does is yeah. always and everywhere a good thing. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu.